family. Welcome back. I hope you all had a Merry Christmas. And for any of you who I didn't have the opportunity to wish that personally, Merry Christmas and ahead of time, a Happy New Year. So we are diving back into Acts. We took a break um, for Advent and we're going to jump back into it today. And we want to start that with a recap. Uh, and to, uh, to do that, we're actually going to use an outfit called the Bible Project. Um, if any of you are not familiar with the Bible Project. They're a wonderful um, resource that you can find for free on YouTube. And they are wonderful at putting uh, a very succinct, um, very accessible way of uh, describing what happens in scripture. And so I'm gonna come back up right at the end of that, but uh, please enjoy the next couple minutes of this video. The Book of Acts. It's the second volume of a unified two-part work that today we call Luke Acts. These were written by the same author, Luke, who was a traveling co-worker with Paul. This is clear from the book's introduction, where Luke says, I produced my first volume, that's the gospel, about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now Luke's giving a clue here as to what this book of Acts will be about. Volume 1 was about what Jesus began to do and to teach. Volume 2 will then be about what Jesus continued to do and teach. Which leads to a really interesting point about the book's traditional but not original name, the Acts of the Apostles. While different apostles do appear in most of these stories, the only single character who unifies the whole story from beginning to end is Jesus himself, acting directly or through the Spirit. And so the book would more accurately be named The Acts of Jesus and the Spirit. The book's introduction recounts how the risen Jesus spends some 40 days with the disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. This connects back to the story of Luke's gospel, where Jesus claimed that he was restoring God's kingdom over the world, beginning with Israel. So he called Israel to live under God's reign by following him. And he was enthroned as king when he gave up his life and then conquered death with his love. And so the book of Acts begins with the risen King Jesus instructing his disciples about life in his kingdom. So he promises that the Spirit will soon come and immerse them in his personal presence. And this fulfills one of the key hopes from the Old Testament prophets, that in the Messianic kingdom, God's presence, his Spirit, would come and take up residence among his people in a new temple and transform their hearts. And so Jesus says, when this happens, the Spirit will empower his disciples to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. From here, Jesus is taken up from their sight in a cloud. It's an image drawn from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. It shows how Jesus is now being enthroned as the Son of Man who was vindicated after his suffering and now shares in God's rule over the world. And so he promises that he will return one day. And so the main themes and the design of the book of Acts flow right out of this opening chapter. This is a story about Jesus leading his people by the Spirit to go out into the world and invite all nations to live under his reign. And so the story will begin with that message spreading in Jerusalem and then into the neighboring regions of Judea and Samaria full of non-Jewish people. And then from there out to all of the nations into the ends of the earth. 
this video is just going to focus on the first half of the book. So the Jerusalem focus section begins with Jesus' followers waiting until the Feast of Pentecost when all of these Jewish pilgrims from all over the ancient world were in the city. And the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples as a great wind and something like flames appear over each person's head and together they start announcing and telling stories of God's mighty deeds. And they're speaking in all of these languages that they didn't know before, but all the people gathered there understand perfectly. Now, in order to see what Luke's emphasizing in this story, it's crucial to see the Old Testament roots of all of these images. So first, the wind and the fire is a direct allusion to the stories about God's glorious fiery presence filling the tabernacle and the temple. And it's also connected to the prophetic promises that God would come and live by his spirit in the new temple of the messianic kingdom. And so here in Acts, God's fiery presence comes to dwell not in a building, but in his people. Luke is saying that the new temple promised by the prophets is Jesus' new covenant family, the people of Jesus, which connects to the second thing Luke is trying to say here. So the prophets promised that when God came to dwell in his new temple, he would reunify all the tribes of Israel under the messianic king and that the good news of God's reign would go out and be announced to the nations. Luke describes in detail the international multi-tribe makeup of all of the Israelites who were there at Pentecost and who responded to Peter's message. And so the apostles keep calling Israelites to acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah and thousands upon thousands respond forming new communities of generosity and worship and celebration. But not everybody's celebrating. From here, Luke shows how Jesus' new family quickly faced hostility from the Jerusalem leaders. With a really beautiful symmetrical design, Luke tells a tale of two temples. So God's new temple, the community of Jesus' followers, they're gathering every day in the temple courts and from house to house. Now, in between those notices are two stories about Peter and the other apostles healing people in the temple courts, only to get arrested by the temple leaders, followed each time by a speech of Peter claiming that Jesus is the true king of Israel. And at the center of all this is a story about Jesus' followers donating property and possessions to a common fund to help the poor which is really cool, but it seems kind of random for Luke to mention it here, until you realize that this was a practice described in the laws of the Torah and was supposed to be happening through the Jerusalem temple and its leaders. So Luke's point here is clear. The new temple of Jesus' community is fulfilling the purpose that God always intended for the Jerusalem temple, to be a place where heaven and earth meet, where people encounter God's generosity and healing presence. Um, so that brings us to the final section of Acts chapter 4 today, and we're going to be reading that. So please follow along as I read it. Uh, we're reading from Acts 4, verses 32 to 37. Starting at verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. 
Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. There's many moments in our lives that are big and worthy of capture, like call them picture-worthy moments, the kind of moments that you post on social media. For Lynn and I, my wife, there's been lots of those moments. This one is when we got engaged. And then we got married. There's tons of pictures, moments that we captured of our kids. And very recently, we celebrated our 25th anniversary. These snapshots are all huge and meaningful events in our lives, but they are just that. They are just snapshots. And perspective is important here. The moments that were huge are surrounded by moments that have been just as big simply because of sheer volume. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, just out of curiosity, uh, this week I did some loose math. And for any of you who know me, that's the only kind of math that I do. But as of this month, Lynn and I have known each other for 14 and a half million minutes. <laughs> All of the picture-worthy events in our life represent just a tiny fraction of that time. All of the time in between, while maybe not times we would take pictures of, were just as important in shaping who we are today. Looking at today's scripture, we see a picture-worthy event in the life of the church and of a man called Barnabas. This is the first time he's mentioned in the Bible, and he does a big thing here. Somebody would have posted it on Instagram if that were a thing, and a whole lot of people who had never met Barnabas would have remembered him for doing this, for making this huge contribution to the brand new community of believers. And because this contribution is coupled with him being specifically named a son of encouragement, we might easily make the assumption that the money is the reason for this. We could also easily assume that this flashy event would mark the beginning of a huge biblical character. Many biblical characters had big events that were talked about in Scripture. Think of David and Goliath, or Abraham, who was willing to sacrifice his son, or Joshua at the walls of Jericho, like we sung about this morning. And like these guys, you might think that we would read on about Barnabas doing spectacular things. But really, quite the opposite is true. One thing that stands out about Barnabas, ironically, is how little he stands out. Even though he's mentioned 33 times in the New Testament, he's kind of easy to miss. But we're going to leave Barnabas for just a few minutes, and we're going to talk about encouragement. Barnabas' name meant son of encouragement, and we're going to kind of set the foundation of that. So encouragement, what does it mean? Encouragement means to instill courage in another person. Now, I'm sure you can think of times in your life when people have encouraged you, and the result of that encouragement is that you're motivated to carry on. But the question is, why? 
why do we need encouragement and motivation to carry on? Well, simply put, life is hard. We talked about that this morning. Gary prayed about that this morning. The first place that my mind goes to when thinking about how hard life is, is external circumstances, things that happen to us that make life hard. But the truth is that life gets hard even before things start to happen to us. Let me share this, and maybe you can relate to it. I spend a lot of time in my own head. And if I'm honest, I can be really hard on myself. I tend to beat myself up pretty good and pretty regularly. Do you do that? I shouldn't have done this, or I shouldn't have done that. I should have done this better. Why didn't I think of something sooner? Why can't I be more effective or more worthy? Listen to Paul lament about this in Romans chapter 7. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer myself who does it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. It's a lot of do's. So we need encouragement because we start pounding ourselves even before the world gets a chance to take a shot. And then we venture outside. There's a powerful scene in a movie where a young girl, she's probably 10 or 11 years old, she's sitting on the hallway outside of her apartment in pretty bad shape because of something that just happened inside of her apartment. And a man walks by and sees her, hands her a clean cloth that she can use to wipe her face. This is a small but kind gesture, but it causes a moment of vulnerability in her, and she looks at him and she says, is life always this hard, or is it just when you're a kid? Always like this, he responds. That might not seem encouraging, but blowing rainbow kisses at someone who's hurting is not really helpful. This little girl's life was full of lying abusers, and she desperately needed and was encouraged by someone just to be truthful. The encouragement that we give each other doesn't have to be a solution to our problems. In fact, it rarely is. Most often, the most encouraging thing we can do is to simply understand what someone is going through. If someone is, you love has died, we can't fix or end the pain of grief, but we sure can take the time to understand how much you love that person. And providing the space and focus to explore that can be the encouragement that is needed to move forward in grief. Sometimes encouragement is providing an answer, though. Have you ever moved and had a team of people show up on your lawn to help you? How encouraging is that? How about just the nature of our location? 
in the vicinity of multiple branches of the military. This area is packed with folks who are away from their natural support systems and the loneliness and isolation that can come from that kind of situation is incredibly real and debilitating. But that's where a church community comes in, where there are no in-laws, grandparents, or childhood friends to draw support from. The people who make up the Big C Church can take on those roles. There are so many stories from within our church where this happens regularly. And let me just take a moment to say thank you to those who do that. You have no idea. So we need encouragement, and we get that from each other, but only if we exist in fellowship. One of the easiest things to do, kind of the default thing to do, is to isolate. How easy is it just to hunker down and be by yourself and stay away from people? But doing that leaves us in a dangerous reality. When isolated, the devil pings on us with thoughts of shame and reminders of the worst parts of ourselves and of our pasts. And those thoughts spread and take over like mold does in darkness. Only the sunlight and fresh air of good fellowship can drive that away. So we find encouragement with each other. And that brings me to a question that brings to light a truth that I really want to focus on today. Who is the most encouraging kind of person in the church? Is it the pastor? Is it the person who gives a lot of money? Who's the most encouraging kind of person in the church? Well, honestly, in my experience, it's the one who quietly gives hugs, writes cards, sends texts, sits down next to you, and makes you feel seen. And when they ask, how are you, they really want to know the answer. Those who run quietly in the undercurrent of our community, doing and saying the things that don't get posted about on social media, but mean the world to the one who receives it, that is the foundation of encouragement. If you are doing that, then you are not only doing some of the most valuable, fruitful work, you are also actively living out the gospel. Jesus, God in the flesh, came near to us, even to the point of living and experiencing death as a sacrifice for our sins, that we might have forgiveness and communion with our God. James 4.8 says that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. If you need that kind of fellowship, remember, it can only happen if you open yourself up to it. Hebrews 10.25 says, let us not neglect meeting together as some have the habit of doing. Now that's not a legalistic demand from an authoritative and controlling God. That's a call from a loving father who knows that we need to seek out the comfort that he provides in one of the main ways that he provides it, through each other. The writer goes on to say, rather, let us encourage each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Why that? Why as you see the day approaching? Well, Jesus warns us in Matthew 25 that as the day of his coming draws closer, things will get worse, life will get harder, and we will need each other even more. Now, an interesting side note, if you want to go down a little rabbit hole, the author of the book of Hebrews is unknown, but there is a large segment 
of biblical scholarship that believes that Barnabas actually wrote it. Can't prove it, but it sure is interesting. So let's get back to him for a minute. Again, some might look at Barnabas, who was wealthy and owned property in a home on the Greek island of Cyprus. I found a picture on the internet. Sorry, cameras were not that good back then. <laughs> and he, laid, he sold it and he laid his, the proceeds at the apostles' feet to be used to help those in need. And you might look at that and say, well, that must have been why he was called a son of encouragement. That must have been the point of the story. Well, I'd like to suggest that that's not even close to the main point. Sure, he did a remarkable thing, but he's mentioned 32 more times in the scripture, and none of those times have anything to do with money or with this sale. The backstory that led to this moment that we see is that the gospel had captivated Barnabas's heart and unleashed him. And the Holy Spirit had given him a huge gift, the gift of encouragement. In fact, the gospel had changed Barnabas so much that his brothers and sisters in Christ gave him a new name. He went from Joseph to Barnabas. That is the emphasis behind what happened with Barnabas, that the gospel changes people and causes them to abandon what the world says to clutch onto and clutch onto God himself. Barnabas had found a new treasure and what he actually did and why it's written down for all of us to see was that he freed himself from the tethers of this life, both his wealth and his status as a Levite, so that he could spend the rest of his life without any kind of anchor. And he used that freedom to, to deploy the spiritual gift that God had given him, which was to encourage everybody, everywhere, wherever God led him to go. We don't have a ton of time left, so I'm going to walk through a very brief survey of Barnabas's life as a, journey, as a missionary. But the point I really want to get across is how monumentally encouraging he was, but not in a flashy way that got lots of attention. So he encounters Jesus and believes. He sells his field, and he goes on mission. And the first thing we hear of him doing is incredible. You may have heard the story of Saul, who was a Pharisee, and had taken it upon himself to defend the purity of Israel and Jewish law from this Jesus who Saul saw as a threat and a dangerous rebel. He did this by chasing down and torturing believers in Jesus, even to the point of overseeing their murder. Then Saul has an encounter with Jesus and is saved. None of the Christians, none of the other Christians believe that this could actually have happened, but we see in Acts chapter 9, when Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas convinced the other believers that Saul wasn't in a threat, and we see in the very next line, so Saul stayed behind with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Saul, or as we know him, Paul, authored at least 13 books of the New Testament. From here, 
Barnabas and companies, accompanies Paul in his mission to preach the gospel. And to reiterate how under the current, under the current uh, Barnabas was, if you try to Google Barnabas's missionary journey, you won't find it. What you'll come up with is Paul's missionary journey. The most amazing thing about this is that Barnabas was known to be Paul's mentor. When Paul is converted, Barnabas not only vouches for him with the Christian community, but he takes him under his wing and teaches him the Christian faith. Together, they spent several years on two missionary journeys, traveling all over Europe, preaching and defending the gospel. Barnabas was also part of the team that planted the Christian church in Antioch, which, is, which was the sister church to Jerusalem. The church in Antioch became the founding church from which launched the mission, the mission to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And it's actually the first place where believers in Jesus were called Christians. During their mission, many men accompanied them, including Timothy and Titus, who Barnabas also mentored and encouraged. And they also went on to write several books of the New Testament. One of the men accompanying them was, was Barnabas's young nephew, a man named John Mark. Mark, as he was known, was not one of Paul's favorite people because he was young and fickle and he'd abandoned them on our journey because it was hard. So Paul gets around to wanting to go back to all the towns that they visited, but he refuses to let Mark go with them. He and Barnabas argue about this and end up parting ways with Paul going one way and Barnabas going the other with his nephew. We don't know what happens from here because this is the last time Barnabas is mentioned in scripture but what happens later is very telling. Whatever mentoring Barnabas did with his young nephew must have been incredible because John Mark goes on later to become one of Paul's and even Peter's most trusted fellow missionaries. And then he goes on to write the Gospel of Mark. Barnabas is mentioned in Acts, Galatians, 1 Corinthians, and Colossians, but he's always just mentioned. You could easily miss him, but if you dig a little deeper, there are three characteristics that I think could sum up his life. Number one, he was a mentor. He mentioned, he mentored Paul, Timothy, Titus, Mark, and many more that we don't even know of. He was an encourager. He encouraged everyone that he came into contact with. And finally, he was a peacemaker, and this is a sermon all by itself, but he made peace between everybody within the Christian community. I think the reason Barnabas is such an important figure in biblical history is that any of us can do what he did. We can't all have the charismatic force of someone like Paul, but anybody can do the most important thing that we do for each other, which is to prop each other up, to give each other safety and encouragement, to mentor each other, and to take opportunities to keep the peace within our community. You see, the shiny, flashy acts are great and meaningful, but they're just a few of the moments that exist among many. It's the quiet words of act and actions of daily encouragement that sustain us over the long haul. So as we head into the new year, GBC family, let's, conti let's continue doing that for one another. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for all of the examples that you've given your word. We thank you for leading us to follow them. 
And we thank you and praise you that you have made us to be part of your community of believers, Lord, for giving us work to do, for allowing us the opportunities and the grace and the wisdom to offer the purity of our presence in the lives of those around us. Father, we thank you and we praise you for this day. And as we head into this new year, would you bless each and every one of us, Lord, with a community around us, with fellowship around us, and would you prop us up through that? We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.